So I've had uh, the joy and privilege in, the, in my life to be able to lead a number of short-term missions trips. Um, you know, I've taken groups to Native Indian re reservations in Montana, been to ghettos in the Philippines, uh, communities built on city dumps in Nicaragua, um, poor rural villages in Vietnam. And, and, and if you've been on any kind of short-term mission trip like that, particularly ones that are in less developed places, often the same kinds of themes will come out in terms of people's experiences. People will often say, wow, it's amazing how happy people are there even though they have nothing. Or they, uh, people will similarly have the kind of experience of being taken out of their normal life here and, and, and seeing uh, often how much identity they put in the things that they do in their everyday life. And I think it, it does that because when you go to this completely different place, uh, it unveils lies that we live in like fish in water that we don't even realize that we're living in those lies. And lies like places like America and Hong Kong, where I'm from, money and material things bring happiness. As much as probably all of you would say, no, yeah, of course not. Money and material don't bring happiness. So often, we still get sucked into that in very subtle ways. Or often, the way we live our lives, even in a place like Iowa City, which is not a big city, we still, in an academic college town like this, we find identity in just being busy, in just doing stuff without stopping to rest and to think. And often people come back from these trips, right, with just a completely different perspective on life, beginning to be able to come back and see, oh, life is not exactly how I thought it was, to bring a different, it's almost like, uh, out-of-body experience, to be able to look at your life from outside of yourself and see the reality for what it is. That's really what the book of Revelation is supposed to do for us. It's supposed to show us, unveil for us, the reality, the spiritual reality behind what is going on in our everyday life. And as we try to faithfully engage in it, it's easy just to kind of fit in and go along and begin to not see the spiritual reality behind things. If you look just even, I really appreciate uh, Matthew Pennings, our ministry of assistant. He does all design work, but I appreciated uh, what Matthew put together for just our banner. You see it, the, the curtain that is being pulled back is just an image of Iowa farmland, just serene and beautiful. And yet the image behind it is a classic piece of artwork depicting Revelation 12, this picture of the pregnant woman battling the dragon. And so pulling back the curtain of our everyday life to see there is a cosmic spiritual battle going on. In the end, and it's, you know, we pray this uh, every week in the, uh, in, in the Lord's Prayer, but the book of Revelation is about the fulfillment of the prayer we pray every week. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The book of Revelation asks us to look at our life from a heavenly perspective, from God's perspective, and to be able to live our life accordingly. And it makes us ask these questions. Will you allow this book to change you and transform you in a way that you will live your life differently? 
Not just be tickled by like, well, what is the millennium? What is the dragon? What's the seven eyes? Like, what is all this stuff? To be transformed in being able to see your life the way God sees this world, this life, to see it from God's perspective. In today's passage, it's almost too simple, but I I think the main point we'll see today is simply this. Jesus is the one who is, I'm sorry, who was, who is, and who is to come. So let's trust and obey. Let's trust and obey. Trust and obey. It's such a cliche Christian term. But it is, in the end, the message of Revelation. Will we trust what God has revealed to be true? Will we, therefore, then obey him in what he has revealed? Let's dig into today's passage Um, So we're looking at what was called the prologue and the epilogue of this book, the beginning and the end. So the title for today's sermon is a reference to the fact that we're looking at the beginning and the end of the book, which is a bit strange, but also the fact that Jesus is described as the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. The the prologue and the epilogue have lots in similarity, right? And maybe that's just good writing, right? You introduce the themes, You wrap up the themes. And so both the beginning and the end of this book do that, and they have similar themes, and we'll see them. I'm still going to mostly focus on um, chapter 1 here, verses 1 through 8, and then just kind of show how there are these themes repeated uh, in in the epilogue as well. We'll have to dive into, and I I preached on a, a chapter in Revelation recently, but I will briefly talk about at least showing my cards. These are my assumptions on how to read Revelation. Depending on how you were brought up, you may not agree with it, but again, at least you know where I'm coming from. So let me read the first two verses first. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. We see this theme, we'll see this theme in both, again, the the prologue and the epilogue, but there's this term called transmission. Essentially, how did God transmit his message to us, right? And um, the first, the second word of this text is is revelation, and the Greek word for that is, is apocalypse, essentially, is where we get the English word apocalypse, and so this idea of apocalypse is, is very important, that some things, before we talk about revelation and apocalypse, some things, again, about how to read this book, at least how I'm reading this book, how I believe we should read this book. So often we talk about the difference between reading this book literally and literarily, in a literal way or in a literary fashion, right? And so often uh, there is people, I, I believe, Christians with right intentions wanting to hold to the truth of the Word of God, to hold to it having authority in our lives and in its revelation, uh, have this commitment to reading the Bible in a literal fashion. And I would question whether we should always read the Bible in a literal fashion. And the, the main reason is the Bible is written in different genres. So there are genres that should be read in a literal fashion. Historical accounts should be read in a literal fashion. Poetry, parables, and I would say revelation should not be read in a literal fashion. That does not mean that it is not true. 
that is not authoritative. It is not to be heeded by us as Christians. It just means we have to read in a more nuanced, careful fashion. And so when we read in a literary fashion, we again try to recognize what is this genre of this book of Revelation and how does that affect the way we read it? And it is why this book is so mysterious and controversial because it is essentially about people coming at it, Christians coming at it with different hermeneutic, a different interpretive key. And so again, if we have this such uh, a strong commitment to reading the Bible in a literal fashion, it will affect the way we understand Revelation. But if we can have some room to say, hey, this is a genre of writing that requires us to read in a literary way to understand how we read this genre, then again, that changes the way we read it. So again, I'm reading it in a literary fashion, still believing in its authoritative word to us. And therefore, then this is important too, um, I believe it is not to be read chronologically, but it is to be read with what we call with recapitulation, or in other words, it has parallels in it. There are sections of Revelation that describe um, events, and then those events are described again from a different perspective. So it's like there are parallels in sections of Revelation that are describing same series of events, but from different angles different perspectives, as opposed to everything has just happened one after another and to be read chronologically. The last important thing in reading Revelation, and again, this comes with understanding the genre, is how to read symbolism, symbolism in Revelation. I think even the most literal translator, uh, interpreter of Revelation understands there are symbols to understand in Revelation. You can't be literal about all of the symbols. You just go crazy trying to take every symbol as literal. The symbols, again, point to truth. And I do believe that John signals how we are to read this book when he uses terms like revelation, show, made it known, which comes from a Greek word related to sign, and words like he saw, he saw a vision. And it prepares us to understand that these are symbolic visions that have been given to John to pass on to us. And so again, this transmission of God's truth, his revelation really, just so you know, goes in this order and the, ep the epilogue confirms it again. God reveals himself through Jesus. Jesus reveals this book, the truth of this book to John, and uh, to an angel. An angel then refers, reveals it to John and John then reveals to the hearers of the early church and then to us who have it contained in scripture for us. So that was, I don't know, you know, I, I didn't want to take up too much time on how to read, how to read Revelation, but that, again, that is how I'm reading Revelation and how we're going to be approaching in this series. So three words I want you to remember. Again, this is just almost context, background. It is such a unique book in the Bible. There really is no other book like it. And so these are three words describe this book. It is apocalyptic, it is prophecy, and it is a letter. And there is really no other book in the Bible that is an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a letter. There are books with prophecy. There are books that contain talking about uh, the apocalypse. Uh, and there are books that are letters. But there are no other books other than Revelation that is an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a letter. And even, again, this looking at the prologue and the epilogue is this is just this simple thing that says this is a letter there's greetings 
there's salutations, there's farewells, and it's, it's a letter. But I'm going to go through these three things. Uh, again, this, to set up our series. The first thing, when we say it's apocalyptic, what does that mean? Again, this is difficult because I don't know how many of you are reading apocalyptic literature. None of you, probably, because it's just you wouldn't even know where to get your hands on some. Um, And it's difficult for us because we hear the word apocalypse as modern-day readers, and I think probably the initial feeling is I'm sort of uncomfortable about talking about the apocalypse. Are, Are we in a doomsday cult here? Like, what's going on? Like, I'm not really into that. Um, and we may not even be into the idea of like just the end of the world. Like, you know, we just, we, we, the, again, the images that come to our mind is just like everything's going to burst into flames. And, and again, this is really not the focus of Revelation, at least. You know, when it says apocalyptic, it means something quite different and specific. Now, in Jesus's time in the early church, there were apocalyptic literature, and there are Jewish apocalypses, writings about the apocalypse, that you could go get your hands on and read and compare. There are certainly similarities to Revelation, and then there are very uh, distinctive things that set Revelation apart from these Jewish um, apocalypses. But despite all that, the most important thing for us to understand about understanding apocalyptic literature, particularly Revelation, is that the book, again, is asking us to see the world unveiled from a spiritual perspective. That's really what apocalyptic means for us as we read Revelation. Or as one commentator says, we are to read it in this way, quote unquote, the perspective of the transcendent divine purpose. We are to read, um, it is to help us to see the world from the perspective of the transcendent divine purpose. That is what it means for it to be apocalyptic. How can we, again, have the curtain pull back? How can we be almost removed from our body, from our world, to see things from God's perspective, to see things knowing the end of the story, and then say, how does that impact my life? It really makes us ask the question, what is reality? Okay, we're living our lives, we're going about our day, but is there something more than just the physical interactions we have every day? Is there a spiritual reality that we must take into consideration as well? And it does have to make us ask this question because we're talking about end of the world kind of things, is what is our view of history? And I'm just going to say, if people need to hear this in future, they can look back on the ser- this sermon, but I just feel like I would fail you if we don't bring this up. Like, talking about ap- apocalyptic literature means we talk about our view of history. And so just some common ways to view history, right? If we're coming from viewing history from an atheistic point of view, then we can sum it up maybe in this way. You live, then you're food for worms. You're just a dot in history. That's it, the end, right? Or perhaps you come from it from an Eastern religion point of view, which is what my background is, that history is cyclical. It repeats itself, and it just repeats itself and repeats itself, and as individuals, we might be reborn again as something in some way, uh, and that there still might be an, sort of an end to it in Eastern religion. You know, Buddhism will talk about enlightenment, if we can achieve it. But again, even enlightenment in that sense is a man-centered view of history. It is about that 
particular individual finding enlightenment, you know, living forever and ever in that, in that state. So it is um, different than Western religion. Western religion, the third thing, is, is essentially seeing history as linear and progressing towards something, progressing towards a climax. And I would set apart Christian view of history in this way, and in this, this is really one of the main themes of Revelation, that God is sovereign over all of history, and history has its beginning in Christ the Creator and finds its goal in bringing glory to Christ. Christ is the beginning and the end. The source of all our existence and history and the goal for which all of history moves and that good will triumph over evil. This quote, I think, really helps us understand, again, how to view apocalyptic literature with that view of history as assumption. Um, Commentator, theologian, Richard Bauckham says this, it is not that the here and now are left behind in an escape into heaven today or the eschatological future, but that the here and now look quite different when they are open to the transcendent. Let me read it just one more time. It's hard to follow. It is not that the here and now are left behind in an escape into heaven today or the eschatological future, but that the here and now look quite different when they are open to the transcendent. It is an affirmation of maybe what a lot of what you've heard just even in common talk today that we are embodied people and that God has made us physical beings and that we are not trying to escape this world altogether to some other otherworldly place. Again, we believe scripture teaches as Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God redeeming earth so that it will be like heaven? How will God's perspective reign supreme in this world rather than us escaping this awful place? It is seeing the present from a heavenly and a future perspective, God's future, from a divine transcendent view. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to ask us again and again in this book, how does knowing the end of the story change the way you live now? How does knowing how God sees this world change the way you live now? And that's difficult for us to do, right? Do we trust this future that God has revealed to us? Do we trust the word to truly communicate to us God's perspective, right? But this, this is what apocalyptic literature asks from us, particularly the book of Revelation. So the second thing is, and it says it in verse 3, that it is a prophecy, that this book is a prophecy. And it means that it is rooted in Old Testament allusions. And in, it's interesting, in Revelation, John does not make any specific, specific reference to any Old Testament text. We'll see that in other scriptures, letters, that it'll say, oh, in Isaiah, in Isaiah it says this, in Ezekiel it says this. John never quotes the Old Testament, and yet it is packed with allusions to the Old Testament. And the Jewish reader, certainly of the time, or the Jewish Christian, would know very well it would bring up all kinds of evocative, uh, it would be evocative for him to hear these allusions because it brings up 
perhaps a whole upbringing of reading the Jewish scripture. And it's a little bit difficult for us because we don't have that same familiarity, but there are so many uh, Old Testament allusions in these prophecies, but also continuing in the line of those prophecies to fulfill them, pointing to a future that was of a trajectory set by the Old Testament. And so it's, pointing to, it's a prophecy that points to a future, but again, along the trajectory of what the Old Testament has been pointing to all along. Again, this is difficult for us, maybe particularly as Presbyterians, to talk about prophecy, being uncomfortable with prophecy. And again, I think often it just comes down to we, we live in a culture that just often doubts the supernatural, says it's, we're to be skeptical of the supernatural, that anything in Scripture that is supernatural is probably should be questioned as non-scientific. And we can get Fred to come up here and have a whole discussion about science versus faith as he has done in the past. But this book will deeply call you to trust God's word to be true, perhaps make you wrestle with this question of science versus faith. Is, it, is supernatural something that is against what science teaches? But there is very much this sense of it being a supernatural prophecy, something beyond our understanding of how this world works. To trust that God's word is true, to trust that he is, again, the source and goal of all of history, and that he will bring fulfillment of his promise, of his prophecy in his sovereignty. So we've looked at it. It's, it's apocalyptic. It is prophecy, and it is in the form of a letter, right? And in verse 4, it shows us that. It says that it's addressed to the seven churches. It's from John, addressed to the seven churches, addressing these seven specific churches under the power of Roman Empire. And that is a significant theme for the reader, the original reader of Revelation, that they were under the oppression and the rule of the Roman Empire. The letter is important for this reason, to recognize that it is a letter. The letter, the fact that it is a letter, and, and this is the fact that it is a letter sets Revelation apart from other Jewish apocalypses. In fact, other Jewish apocalypses sometimes were read, uh, written as if they were an ancient prophet. They will write in the name of Enoch, and it almost became written like a fictional past prophecy pointing forward. And yet John writes in his name. John writes in his name two specific churches, two specific people. And it changes very much the way we read and understand the book of Revelation. It challenges us to consider and examine our own lives. What are the words that are spoken to these seven churches that ring true for us? that are struggles that we have in this world, in our lives now. And there's this question that will be asked again and again. Do we truly believe that God is sovereign? That he will deliver from the evil empires of back then and now? That good will triumph over evil? Those things are true, but in that truth, is not just a book that says, hey, you're going to be delivered from that awful, oppressive persecution. Some people read Revelation that way. 
we Christians will be delivered from our suffering, from our persecution. There is that theme in there. But inherent in it being written to these seven specific churches as a circular letter that went to other churches as well is a call to examine our own hearts, our own faith, our own actions, to ask the question, whom or what do you really serve? Whom or what do you really serve? Do you serve God or do you serve the Roman Empire? Do you serve God or do you serve whatever is that particular idol of back then or now for us? And the Bible promises us assurance of our salvation because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And yet scripture also at the very same time warns us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians. We cannot read Revelation as just an assurance of our deliverance. We have to read Revelation with hearts open, willingly having God examine our lives, our hearts, our actions. So, Revelation is apocalyptic, prophecy in the form of a letter. Let's dig into some specifics here in the text. Um, Verse 3 says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, which we talked about briefly, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is what commentators call a benediction in Revelation, and there are seven benedictions. I'm laughing because seven comes up so much it becomes almost comical. Um, but there are seven benedictions, and in the epilogue, in the prologue and the epilogue, three of those seven benedictions are mentioned, and then there are four others in the remainder of, of um, the book of Revelation. So we hear this one here, and in the epilogue, 20, verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 7 says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Chapter 22, verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. In these benedictions, in the one we see here in the the prologue and the epilogue, is this affirmation that true, long-lasting blessedness comes only through God. That sounds really straightforward, and that is what we struggle to believe every day. Every day as we live in this world, we're tempted to believe that blessing, blessedness, comes from something else other than God. And in Revelation, and again and again, we're asked, do you believe that true blessing comes in and through God? And if we do trust that, then it requires, demands, calls us to obedience to God, loving obedience Trust in God. Again, trusting his revelation to be true. Trusting his revelation of morality, of salvation, of how we're to live our lives to be true. 20, verse 22, 14, I mean, chapter 22, verse 14, reminds us specifically that we are washed by the blood of Christ, that we stand before God as cleansed because of Christ and that we have our eternal dwelling with him as a result of that faith. 
and that we have this promise of access to the tree of life and entering into the new Jerusalem that is described in this book. Do you trust that this blessing of God is the true eternal blessing and that nothing else can stand up against it? Let's keep going, though. Verse 4 says, uh, again, we referenced this earlier, it's, this book is written by John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So just a quick word about seven. Seven is a symbolic number. I don't believe we're meant to read this literally whenever we see seven. This, letter, this, this, this book is not written to just seven churches, although seven churches are spoken to specifically, but this was a circular letter that went beyond just the seven churches. And so by addressing seven churches, John is trying to tell us that these seven churches are representative of all Christians who will come after, well, then and after, that this word of the Lord is for all who have ears to hear. And that is the refrain in chapter 2. Verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the same call for us. Do we have ears to hear the truth that is spoken in the book of Revelation? There are specific challenging words that God speaks to these specific seven churches. But the work we have to do as modern day readers is to ask, what was the challenge given in that particular context to that particular church? And then we do the work of saying, okay, how does that apply to me? How do we struggle in today in a similar fashion? And maybe there are some of the words spoken to a particular church we, we don't relate to either as an individual, as a local church, or, or, or as just our culture in general. And there are probably some that we're like, wow, that's just spot on exactly the same thing that we struggle with as Christians today. And that is a question we continue to ask throughout this book. What is the challenge that God has for us as we do the work of understanding the original challenge given to the seven churches. He goes on, though, in his salutation to say, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, which is, again, it's a, it's a repetition already, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, again, seven, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Again, this number seven is a number of completion, a number of perfection. And really, it's just John's way of saying the Holy Spirit. And so this greeting, grace to you and peace, is from God the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. It's just a Trinitarian um, greeting saying we believe in God who is one, but is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we find this affirmed right from the beginning in the book of Revelation, which is I think, super encouraging. And then he goes on to say, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and forever, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Again, so concise and so beautiful little phrase. It is the gospel in essence right here. The gospel described in such few words, so concisely telling us who God is, how he feels about us, what he's done for us, and who he has made us through the gospel, that he is a God of love who loves us, that he is a God who has freed us from the power of sin and death. He is the God who has laid down his life through his son, Jesus Christ, for our sake, that he is the God who has made those who trust in him to be his kingdom and his priests forever, 
that we are his dwelling place as his kingdom and that we are his representatives forever and ever through our faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, that is the gospel, so succinctly put. And yet he goes on to say, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Again, this, this emphasis of his coming. And every eye will see him, and even those who pierce him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This theme of Jesus' coming is repeated again and again and again in the book of Revelation, and its idea, its truth is first introduced in the prologue. And yet it is very much tied to, again, the point of Revelation. The point of Revelation being telling us that Jesus Christ is the source and goal of all of history. And his coming, his return, will fulfill that work that he is doing right now, has been doing, is doing, and continues to do. He is not a God who is removed from our lives. He is not a God who turned the clock, set it, and just let it go. He is engaged in this world, in history, working all history towards God's purpose and end. And so, in fact, the penultimate verse of this book, right before John signs off, chapter 22, verse 20, he says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And the response is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so that ought to become our prayer as well. Yes, sovereign Lord, bring history to your fulfillment and to your purpose. And we pray with John, come, Lord Jesus, fulfill your purposes in this world. And we are given the grounds in which to have this trust because time and time again in Revelation, we are told in beautiful ways who this God is. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation is such a packed book, it's going to be interesting for me to figure out how to preach on it, because there's so many interesting things, and it's tough to be editorial, but I'm, I just, these things really spoke to me, and so I'm going to point out this little self-declaration of God about who he is. This is one of two times that God the Father speaks in Revelation. He speaks also in chapter 21, verse 6, and um, describing himself as the, in this way, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come. This phrase again of God's self-declaration of being who was and is and is to come is often taken the wrong way. It is often taken as meaning God is self-existent. He doesn't need us. And yet, what is so interesting about the way this self-designation is written is it says, he is the one who was and who is. Those verbs are the same verb. And who is to come is a different verb. And again, this self-designation reaffirms this theme of Jesus' coming, right? The future that is in God's hand, wrapped up in the return of Jesus. And it tells us and this very simple truth. Again, God is a God who is engaged in this world, who is at work in this world, who is at work in our lives. 
He's not just this detached, removed, supreme being who wants nothing to do with us. He is the one who is to come. He is working in our lives and will continue to work in our lives if we trust and obey him. This particular self-declaration that God the Father speaks himself, Jesus in Revelation affirms as also who he is. He is the one who was and is and is to come. Chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 22, verse 13. Jesus takes on a very similar self-declaration about himself. And in fact, between God the Father and Christ in the book of Revelation, this particular form of self-declaration is said seven times. And it refers to this Old Testament passage in Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. It really should remind us, I think even for us who've grown up in the church, we know this verse. In Exodus 3, when God revealed himself to Moses, he says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, I am has sent me to you. And again, often that has been, trans, has been interpreted as like God saying, I'm the self-existent being, I don't need you, I exist apart from you. And of course, there's truth to that. But really, more than anything, what God is saying is that he is committed to be the God who has worked in history, in people, in this world with with us. I am who I am is not just saying he is self-existent. He's saying that I am with you. I am working in this world, in this history, to bring God's purposes to its end. In this self-designation in chapter 8, he also refers to himself as the Almighty. This self-designation as Lord God Almighty, again, said seven times, And later on in chapter 4, another self-designation is used. The one who sits on the throne. Again, used seven times in the book of Revelation. And so what God does with these self-designations in the book of Revelation is to call us to see who he is. Because if we don't know who he is, we have no confidence. We have no reason. We have no motivation to trust and obey. It is only if we truly believe that Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come that we have power to trust and obey as we live out our life. And even with this self-designation as the one who sits on the throne, he calls us again heavenward to look at this world from a heavenly perspective, to see the world from God's eyes, and to say, how will we live differently Now that we know the end of the story, now that we know who God is, now that we see things from God's perspective. And so we're asked, in essence, is God on the throne of our lives or is something else on the throne of our lives? Jesus is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And he calls us to trust and obey as we live out this life. That's the main message of the book of Revelation that is summed up in the prologue and the epilogue, the beginning and the end 
of the book of Revelation. I'm going to end with this quick faux pas illustration that pastors are told never to use ever again because it's completely overdone, but I don't care. The movie The Matrix. If you don't know the movie The Matrix, the basic idea is this whole life that we're living is fake. It's not actually happening. We're just these limp bodies that have been plugged into a grand computer system. And in order for us to power the world, uh, we have to think in our brains that we're actually living a life. So it's just all fake. We're just living in the matrix in, the computer, in this computer world. And Keanu Reeves' character, Neo, is the, the anointed one, the, cho- the chosen one. I'm sorry, I don't think they use anointed. He's the chosen one, and he has to figure out how to set free humanity from being plugged into the whatever supercomputer matrix thing, right? And at the end of the movie, he realizes there's a resistance, and he, he gets you know, the truth revealed to him by the resistance, and, and at the end, he comes into his powers, um, and he helps to set free people, right? And so... But at the end of the movie, the, the kind of the cli- climatic scene is Neo, as opposed to just seeing life as it is, begins to see that all of life is just code, computer code, and he can see through all of it, and he sees life unveiled for him, the reality of what is going on. Oh, it's just code. And he can defeat, he can you know, surpass all the, the, you know, stopping bullets and, you know, controlling things because he, he can see beyond um, the veil and see what actually is. It's this idea, right, that there is a reality behind what we see. Right? But think about this, right? And that, and that is what the book of Revelation is about. There is a spiritual reality behind what we see in everyday life. Will we allow God's revelation to see things from his perspective, to see things from the future back, to change our lives? But think about the movie Matrix. Imagine in this climactic scene, Neo seeing the code. He's like, oh, I know how to defeat this. He's like, ah, nah, I'm just going to ignore that and go back to pretending that it's just normal life delusion. I just want to be plugged back into the supercomputer. That would be tragic, right? And there's a scene in the middle of the movie that's about making that choice. But imagine if Neo made the choice to ignore seeing the unveiled reality. That would be tragic. Now, I know reading Revelation is not as simple as that, but that's the call of this book. Will we have eyes and hearts to see the unveiled reality of what God reveals in the book of Revelation? To see that Jesus is the one who was, who is, and is to come and calls us to trust and obey as we live out our lives today. Let's pray.